0: John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One Podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to imbuecbd.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at imbue.com. CBD.com. That's imbuecbd.com. Promo code John Z. This is episode number 93 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media we hear at the Individual One podcast, have most definitely not been compromised or... Co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at individual one pod. That's at individual. The number one pod, as is always the case, so much to get to in this episode number 93 after we took an episode off because I was traveling. I'll get to that later in the program. That's uh, related to the coronavirus uh, panic, which is continuing throughout the world and here in America and which will obviously have political may already already be having political uh, ramifications. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to begin with the latest in the battle for the Democratic Nomination to go up against Donald Trump in the November election, and it appears as if uh, it's pretty much over. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, 11 or 12 days ago, Bernie Sanders was considered, including by me, to be the favorite, if not the prohibitive favorite, to be the Democratic presidential nominee. And people were panicking. I was one of those that was urging people to panic in a real panic. Uh, because of the potential disaster of Bernie Sanders going up against Donald Trump. By the way, no matter what the outcome would be, there was no good outcome to a Bernie Sanders-Donald Trump uh, matchup in November. Who knows? There may not be that many good outcomes with a Biden versus Trump November uh, general election, but at least there's some semblance of hope. And whether or not it was people like me pressing the panic button prematurely, or whether it was a combination of factors, who knows? But wow, uh, in uh, 10 or 11 days, it went from Bernie Sanders being the prohibitive favorite to now Joe Biden being a lock, being a lock to be the Democratic nominee. Correct. And this is something that Donald Trump does not want. Correct. Which is why we had the entire Ukrainian scandal and the impeachment saga. Correct. So uh, so and I've been saying for over a year and a half that Joe Biden was your safest bet to go up against Donald Trump if you just want to beat Trump. Now, he's not as safe as he was back then because the Ukrainian situation did muddy him up, uh, bloody him up a little bit. uh, And there's certainly a lot more questions about his mental stability, which is going to be, I'm sure, a major issue since it's one of the few areas that Trump can really go after him, although Obviously, he's living in a glass house when it comes to that particular issue. Correct. Uh, but the the reality is that he was a lot safer bet than Bernie Sanders. And Democrats seemingly understand this in in a remarkable fashion. I mean, for this to turn around, I get that James Clyburn's endorsement in South Carolina was big. And the black vote decided that they were going to go overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And that's a massive advantage in a Democratic primary. And the South Carolina primary gave him momentum into the first Super Tuesday. That all made sense. But I never believed it was going to be this overwhelming, this, frankly, easy. And I think part of it was and it's now obvious after last night's results, which clinched it for Biden. It's now very obvious that uh, the people began to learn who Bernie Sanders really was, that a lot of the Bernie Sanders myth and mystique was built On a fraud, it was built on a misperception, and I have been saying, even while seemingly contradictory, in a a contradictory fashion, paradoxically saying that both that Sanders was underperforming in the first few contests that he won, considering uh, what his his results were in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, and considering what his poll numbers were, he was both underperforming and yet also the favorite to win the nomination. And I understood that that was contradictory and paradoxical, but it was I was rationalizing it that it was partially because his competition was so weak. I was a big believer in 2016 that most—I don't know if "most" is the right word—but a large portion. A Bernie Sanders support against Hillary Clinton was just simply he was the only non-Hillary option. Correct. That's, that's what was driving a lot of his popularity. And no one really thought he was going to beat Hillary in 2016. So he never got a full media vetting. People never truly contemplated the the concept of him being the Democratic nominee or, heaven forbid, being president of the United States. And therefore... I think a lot of people in the public had no idea that he refers to himself as a socialist, that he's not even technically a member of the Democratic Party. And when he started to get a little bit of scrutiny and the 60 Minutes interview happened and people started to think about this in real terms, that Bernie was no longer just this theoretical idea, you know, once you actually pull the trigger on getting married and you've got to think about spending the rest of your life with this person, now all of a sudden things change, Uh, things get real. And you go, wait a minute, at least some people go, wait a minute, hold on. Is this really what we want to do, especially when the, the alternative might be a second term of Donald Trump? Isn't there a better or safer path to take here? And Joe Biden clearly became that path. And last night, Biden clinched the nomination for all intents and purposes because he won Michigan. Now, there, I've already said based upon last Tuesday's results, that Bernie Sanders had essentially no argument for the nomination. He's not bringing massive amounts of new people to the polls. His turnout is not anywhere near what he pretends it to be. Uh, His his numbers are somewhat fraudulent. Uh, They're way down from what they were in 2016 because it's not all about him and his movement. A large part of it, as I said, was being anti-Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, But the the reality here is that after he loses Texas—I mean, Texas was the end of any rational Bernie Sanders— Argument because he was pretending that he could bring huge numbers of Latino voters to the polls, that they were special voters for him. Well, that didn't work in Texas. And Biden pulls off a massive upset in Texas. Biden pulls off a massive upset in Massachusetts. By virtue of Amy Klobuchar's endorsement, he wins Minnesota. Uh, He even wins Maine, which could be relevant in a general election. And it's right in Bernie Sanders uh, back, uh, you know, in in his in his back door, uh, in his backyard. I mean, so there's there's no argument even before last night that Bernie Sanders should be the nominee. But when you lose Michigan, that's game, set, match. And here's why that's game, set, match. Last time around in 2016, Bernie Sanders won Michigan. He beat Hillary Clinton in Michigan. Not by a lot, but it was a stunning upset. And even then, he didn't win the nomination. So in 2016, he wins Michigan in an upset. Michigan is obviously a key state. We didn't even realize how key a state it was at the time. But Michigan is one of the three states that gave Donald Trump the presidency later that year. Because he won Wisconsin, he won Michigan, and he won Pennsylvania. So Bernie Sanders in 2016 beats Hillary Clinton In Michigan. This time around, he gets beat by Joe Biden. And he gets beat by Joe Biden by a pretty significant margin. And that's game, set, match. Because if you win Michigan in 2016 and you still lose the nomination, you can't lose Michigan by a fairly substantial margin, especially when it's one of the three most important states, and then go on to be the nominee. That's not possible. It's not remotely logical, even for this upside down world in which we now live. That's not going to happen. And it's even deeper than that, because when you go inside the numbers, what's obvious is that Biden beat Sanders in Michigan last night by winning far more white males and far more moderates and even more black voters than Hillary got in 2016. So the difference between 2016 and 2020 between Hillary and Sanders and Biden and Sanders is that white males, moderates, and blacks are voting in larger numbers, larger percentages for Joe Biden against Sanders than they voted for Hillary against Sanders. And so now you have one of the top three most important states, and those are the most important constituencies to winning a general election. You got to take, you cannot let Donald Trump own the white male vote. You must maximize the black turnout, and you must appeal to moderates who are and disaffected Republicans. And those aren't huge numbers of people, but they're enough to be the difference in a hotly contested state. And so Biden did that. Hillary did not, and it was ominous in retrospect. It was a foretelling of what would end up happening in November against Donald Trump because she lost Michigan. She lost Wisconsin, and she lost Pennsylvania, and especially in Pennsylvania and Michigan, those voting blocks I just talked about, white males, moderates, especially suburban moms, and maximizing turnout among blacks. Those are the keys to winning those two states. Wisconsin, a little bit different because it's almost entirely white, uh, with some exceptions. But certainly in Michigan and Pennsylvania, that's the key to winning. And Biden has shown he can do it, and Bernie Sanders clearly cannot, and he is going to be the nominee. And, you know, I'm happy about this because all the other alternatives that were realistic uh, were far worse, specifically Bernie Sanders. There's still major problems. There are still major problems with the Joe Biden candidacy if your goal is to prevent Donald Trump from getting a second term, which has been my primary goal in all of this. It is bizarre to me, as someone who actually made a major documentary film called Media Malpractice in 2009, which spends several minutes torching Joe Biden for being clueless, that somehow, uh, you know, now, Uh, 11 years later, I I am uh, supposed to be happy about Joe Biden being the the great hope to be the next president of the United States. I'm not. I don't agree with him on hardly anything politically. And, you know, he was not totally with it back in 2008, 2009. He's no more with it and probably a lot less with it than, uh, than then now, as obviously would be anybody 11, 12 years later at his age. And, well, I don't believe he has dementia. I don't believe he has Alzheimer's because, frankly, he's always been this way. That's the part that's kind of humorous about all this criticism of Joe Biden's mental state. This has kind of been the way Joe Biden's always been. He's been a gaffe machine. He has always said weird things. He's always acted a little bit weird. People need to understand, and if I'm the Biden campaign, one of the things that I really need to get out there as a narrative, because I don't think most voters know it, is that he has battled a stutter for his, most of his life. And that contributes to this problem where he says things that make it, him sound like he's out of it uh, mentally. But when you look as old as Biden I- does, and, and you are as old as he is, all of a sudden, w- verbal gaps that uh, come about because of a lifelong stutter get interpreted as dementia. Or uh, Alzheimer's or or something uh, related to a mental defect, especially when the guy running against you knows that that's one of the few weapons he can use. Correct. So that's going to be a problem. And this came to light again yesterday with a video that went viral. And there's a lot of strange things about this video. This is a video. I'm going to play the audio of it in a second here. This is uh, Joe Biden. After speaking to a lot of union members, Joe Biden is very pro union. And uh, he was speaking to a group of union members, and afterwards he was filtering through the crowd. Now, the first part about this I find interesting is, considering all the panic regarding coronavirus, I'm amazed that they let Joe Biden, especially at his age, filter through a crowd like this in very, very close quarters. And I'm somebody who is not in the category of those panicking about coronavirus, and even I am startled— that they would let an old an elderly candidate filter through a crowd like this and it's hardly a stretch that uh, you know you could you could have a trump supporter who has coronavirus decide that they want to try to take joe biden out you know, by shaking his hand or whatever i mean it wouldn't take all that much to theoretically uh, give a coronavirus to an old man uh, and that would cause a massive problem on on numerous levels and so the idea that no one seems to be concerned about that in in this particular situation I found to be a, a bit bizarre and again I'm on I'm on this end of the spectrum that thinks we're overreacting currently to the coronavirus I'll get to that uh, shortly but that's the context uh, for this this video this audio that we're about to play for you so this this union member comes up to Biden and frankly, he's been a bit of a, uh, of a D-bag. Uh, he comes up to him and he's reading, which is odd. He's, he's reading from his phone. He's clearly got a, a prepared question slash statement that he wants to articulate to Joe Biden relating to guns because his and his question isn't a horrendous one. The basis of the question is a lot of union members are also pro-gun. And he was going after Biden because some of the verbiage that Biden has used has been very anti-gun. Specifically, this whole thing where Beto O'Rourke was uh, bragging that, "Yeah, we're going to take away your guns from you," and this is where context matters. And what was Biden really signing on to when he he associated himself with uh, O'Rourke's comments? And if you're and you're going to hear here in a minute that. The Biden's argument is he's talking about one specific type of gun, not guns in general. But here is the exchange, and it's a, it's a minute and 42 seconds long. At the end, it just kind of peters out because it, Biden decides he's, he's done with this. He just starts walking away. But it gets really heated. At one point, Biden even uses profanity. In fact, right off the bat, he calls him full of shit. Uh, and uh, here's what that sounded like, and I'll, I'll comment on afterwards. These union workers... That have been working countless hours under
1: the Trump administration. I'd like you to explain how you plan to not only keep us
0: working, but how you intend on getting the union vote when there is a large portion of the union workers that are gun enthusiasts, and you are actively trying to diminish our Second Amendment right and take away our guns. You're full of shit. All right, thank you. Now, shush, shush. I support the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, just like right now, if you yell fire, that's not free speech. From the very beginning, I have a shotgun, I have a 20-gauge, a 12-gauge. My sons hunt. Guess what? You're not allowed to own any weapon. I'm not taking your gun away at all. You need 100 rounds. So and when you're, you're with Beto, You were doing a video when you said you were going to take our guns. That I means did life. not say that. That's not. Tr- I, I did not say that. It's a viral video.
1: Well, it's a viral video like the other ones they're putting out that are simply a lie.
0: Your voice. You said that you're taking the gun. Well, no, he Beto. just clarified Beto. it. Oh, wait, wait, he wait, wait, go wait, go wait. Go hey, hey, take the AR, the AR. Yeah. Your AR-14s. Okay, look okay, this is not okay. Hold on. Hold on. All right. You want to do the same thing? There's a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys wanting. I'm not worried. Hold Give me a break, man. Don't be such a horse. You're up on me. Hey,
1: there's a lot of. Hey, 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 here?
0: Look, here's go the deal. Go go here's on. the deal. Are you able to own a machine gun? I said, are you able to own one? Machine guns, machine said, guns? are able, uh, no, 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 no. Guns That's right. That's great. So rare, 15's illegal. How is that in the machine gun. No, How it's not. Yeah, do, do you need 100, 100 rounds? rounds? Do you need 100, 100 rounds? rounds? in America with handguns, and there are what you call assault rifles. Why are you advocating for assault rifles when people are dying by okay, okay, like
1: handguns, you. That's enough. are do this
0: all right. So at that point, Biden just walks away and the, the confrontation essentially ends. I will say that uh, if we pretend that we go back to, I don't know, like 2014 in the pre Trump era where all the rules about politics have changed, that would be a rather stunning interchange between the now presumptive Democratic presidential <laughs> nominee and a voter. Now, I don't like the voter. The voter was being a jerk. Uh, And I don't mind Biden uh, showing some uh, outrage or a little bit of anger or standing up for himself, especially when he feels like his position is being mischaracterized. To come right out of the bat and say you're full of shit, I think, is um, odd and inappropriate. Uh, Again, in the 2014 model, uh, pre-Trump, for a presidential candidate to do. I also acknowledge though that the rules have completely changed and at a certain point Biden you know has to play by the new rules the rules were created now by Donald Trump and this is a very tough uh, balancing act for Joe Biden because part of what he's selling is a return a return to normalcy right so if you if you're selling a return to normalcy do you acknowledge that the rules have changed, and do you play by the new rules, or do you bet that you can go by the old rules and that people won't punish you for not fighting back? That is a tough one, and I think that's a situation-by-situation situation call. I'm not sure this is the one I would have picked, but what's there's so many ironies of this particular situation. One is that the conservative media i even hesitate to use that term anymore it's more like the state-run cult 45 pro-trump media but the pro-trump media was all in a tizzy clutching their pearls oh my goodness joe biden told a voter to he was full of shit and he seemed to be threatening him or or not really threatening but the but essentially challenging him to some sort of a fight and he he lost his temper Really? I mean, come on, people. You can really. I mean, after defending Donald Trump all of this time, you cannot be serious. All the things that Trump has done, all the things that Trump has said, all the rules that Trump has broken, you're, you're really going to clutch your pearls over something that's as fairly mild as this. And what's really ironic to me, it's not just the hypocrisy angle uh, of the conservative p- pearl clutching over this, is that Biden is actually taking in that audio, in that video, he's taking about as conservative a position as you are allowed to take in a Democratic primary on the issue of guns. Correct. He is saying, I'm in favor of the Second Amendment. I'm in favor of your right to own and and buy guns. He's acknowledging that he and his family own and use guns. That's borderline blasphemy. (laughs) in the modern Democratic Party. And yet he still, uh, you know, was willing to say it. Bless FIBA! So so I I find that hilarious that when Biden is acting like Trump and taking a position that's about as conservative as you're allowed to take in a Democratic primary, that's what the conservative media is all in a tizzy about. Now, there is a separate issue. And I do think that uh, when you watch that video— not that this individual circumstance is going to be a problem for Joe Biden. I think most people who saw that felt, oh, okay, it's a little weird, but I like seeing fighting Joe, and he's going to be need to be a fighter to go up against Trump. So it didn't bother people in the micro. But what bothered me about it as someone who would like to see a a uh, the best of Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. That's my current position. Uh, but if, if if Biden were to decline significantly, I might have to change my stance on that. But that's my hope. My concern is his level of anger and and umbrage. Uh, he lost his cool there and he lost his cool really pretty quickly. And you know, I, my father is older. He's not. A, my father's not an angry person. But, uh, you know, I, I, because I, I have an older father, I know a lot of older people. I have uh, in-laws that are that are uh, around 80 years old. And what I saw there was reminiscent of, of what sometimes happens when people get older, when they kind of they're not in total control. And uh, I also felt that maybe part of his anger was being motivated by the fact that, he had been forced to take a position that was more liberal on gun control because of his, his precarious position in the primary than he really believed in. And he was essentially being called out on that, and it upset him. It angered him because oftentimes when people get angry, it's more about themselves than, than the other person. And so my interpretation of that was he was angered over the fact he was being called out on having shifted his position more to the left than what his real beliefs are. And now, you know, of course, as we're heading towards a general election, he can scurry back to what he was before because he no longer has to worry, really, at least not in the primaries, of appealing to the most progressive elements of his party. So I wouldn't say that that Video was a huge concern for me, but there were some red flags there. And my concern is okay, what about going forward? You know, there's a long time between now and November. There's going to be a lot of opportunities, although it's possible that coronavirus might be a saving grace for Joe Biden because the coronavirus will probably keep these kind of interactions from ever happening again. And of course, once you're the actual nominee, you are almost automatically more isolated from the public. Uh, So, you know, maybe there won't be as many opportunities as you might think. But clearly, there's going to be chances between now and November for this kind of thing to happen again. And if it does, it could be even worse. And if it becomes a pattern, I do think that's going to be a problem. Because there's absolutely no question that, Joe Biden's mental stability, as bizarre as it is, as absurd as it is, considering that Trump has his own series of mental illnesses that are a little bit different, but maybe even more dramatic than what Joe Biden has. This is clearly going to be at the forefront of the Trump campaign against Joe Biden, because one of the biggest problems the Trump campaign now has, and they have many and they are growing quickly almost on a daily basis, largely because of coronavirus, One of the biggest problems for Trump is that the entire narrative that Trump has been desperate to try to help build and he has been counting on, the entire narrative that Bernie Sanders got robbed of the Democratic nomination and therefore the Sanders forces should either feel so disaffected that they stay home or that some of them even cross over and vote for the other populist, which would be Donald Trump. That's a very key narrative for Trump. He obviously has seen this for weeks. He's been trying to stir up crap between the the Biden and the Sanders forces because he sees this as a potential vulnerability. Well, thanks to last night, that narrative is just not going to hunt. There's going to be no now that people don't always act rationally. There's always going to be nut jobs, but those complete nut jobs, you, you couldn't count on them to decide the election in your favor to begin with. But, the, but by and large, the, the, the semi-rational elements of the Bernie Sanders support is not going to be able to believe that they were robbed of the nomination. I mean, this thing is over. It's going to be far, far more decisive than even 2016 was and with the specter of a second term of Donald Trump uh, weighing over everybody, I have to believe that unity is not going to be nearly as big a problem for the Democrats as I had feared. That had always been really my number one fear of the Sanders candidacy doing so well. It wasn't so much that I thought he was going to win the nomination. I was never certain about that, even close to certain about that. But what I was pretty darn certain about, and thankfully I was dead wrong was that he was going to be able to claim he was robbed, that the, that the, the pain, uh, the, the damage, the conflict that was going to have to be created to prevent Bernie Sanders from being the nominee was going to be so great that it was going to leave Biden essentially crippled and, or handicapped going into the general election. That was always my biggest concern, and now that is very, very unlikely to happen. Something really super dramatic, like a medical emergency, would have to occur for Joe Biden to either not be the nominee or for him to not have a unified Democratic Party behind him. Something really a black swan, catastrophic type event, which in this day and age is certainly possible. But you can't foresee it. And I I don't anticipate it. I do believe that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. And there's a very good likelihood the Democratic Party is going to be strongly united against him or in favor of him and against Donald Trump. That is a big problem for Donald Trump, because one of the weapons he was planning on is now gone. He, he, he was always hoping to prevent Biden from being the nominee. That's what the whole Ukrainian scam was about. And then he was hoping that Biden would not be the nominee with a unified party. And that's what fomenting this narrative that Bernie Sanders was going to get robbed for a second time was all about. Trump has apparently now failed on both counts. Correct. And that's a big problem. So now they're going to have to use desperate measures and they're going to go after Joe Biden's mental state. That's going to be huge. They'll continue with this Hunter Biden conspiracy corruption theory, which is just incredibly bogus, of course. Inherent in all of this is the utter hypocrisy uh, of Donald Trump getting elected to drain the swamp when he's the swampiest president we've ever had, where his children and and his in-laws are making all sorts of money from from him being the president of the United States. And somehow they're going to make Hunter Biden grift uh, the major issue of the campaign. And here's a guy who is a, an incredible narcissist, ha- has enormous mental and emotional issues. Uh, has a childlike mentality, and he's going to attack Joe Biden's mental fitness for the job. It's absurd. It's it's completely insane. It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's what they're going to do because that's all they really have. That's all they can do. And let's face it, Biden does give them ammunition. Biden certainly gives more than enough ammunition for the cult to hang together the Colt 45 is going to have no problem hanging together against Biden because they'll be easily able to be uh, portraying him as someone who's unfit for office and, uh, you know, all sorts of conspiracy theories. There's not going to be any problem with Trump holding on to his base against Joe Biden. Uh, The problem is for Trump, is his base large enough to win a general election? And that has always been the number one question. And currently against Joe Biden, I don't think it is. Now, that can change, obviously, with how moderate voters perceive all of this and what kind of turnout Joe Biden can get. He's going to have a problem turning out younger people. So, you know, but Trump's base puts him at least in the ballpark. And him being in the ballpark is a problem in and of itself. I'm sure this will be a continuing theme of this podcast as we get closer to November. But this is a situation, and it's probably the first time in my lifetime, only time in my lifetime, maybe the only time in, in modern American history, if not the entire history of the country, where it's critical not just that someone win or lose an election. It must be decisive. One, because he's the incumbent and it's kind of like the old uh, you know, heavyweight championship adage that you, you can't beat the heavyweight champ in a decision, you got to knock him out. Well, it's, it's somewhat the same way with Trump. But it's not because you know, that's how you win. It's that's how you make sure he doesn't claim he was robbed and that his supporters don't believe that he was robbed. And with, you know, possession being nine-tenths of the law, uh, you know, proverbially, uh, is Trump going to be in a situation where he contests the election and refuses to leave? Now, a lot of people have scoffed at that, laughed at that. I, I don't understand why we-, we are laughing at that. Uh, What what is it in his mentality that would prevent him from doing that? And and the question I always ask is, who among top Republicans or state-run media members or even people in the Department of Justice or even on the Supreme Court, which of those groups of people, who's going to be the person or persons to stand up and say, Mr. President Donald Trump, You lost, and you need to go, and it's outrageous what you're doing. No one is going to do that, especially while he's still in power. That's why this is such an incredibly important point. And and unfortunately, currently, even with the current uh, political situation in flux because of the coronavirus and the, the stock market crashing, his base, by all accounts, is large enough to make sure he does not get totally blown out. Now, he still could. He still could, especially if if the impact on the economy is as what some fear because of coronavirus, then he will get blown out and there won't be any concerns about that. But there is a huge, huge difference in this case between Trump losing a close election and Trump getting blown out. I mean, it literally could be the difference between war and peace. I mean, that's hyperbole, but not by much. And so that is a really important factor to continue on here. Uh, as we evaluate what's going to happen between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But for now, we now know that's going to be the matchup. And there's probably not going to be a major third-party run. Now, I'm sure the libertarian party will put out some candidate. I would love to see it be Justin Amash. That would be really great. Give me somebody to vote for. Uh, I'm, a, I'm in a very, very small uh, group of people in this country who are anti-Trump conservative libertarians. But uh, and, so that, and my vote here in California doesn't mean anything to begin with. But by and large, this is going to be a classic head-to-head matchup uh, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And right now, well, I have huge disagreements with Joe Biden on almost all the issues, I am rooting for him to win. I don't know yet whether I'll be able to vote for him philosophically. Again, my vote in California doesn't matter. Uh, but I am currently hoping that Joe Biden will prevent a second Donald Trump term. And a lot of people are starting to think that that's the more likely scenario because of what's happening with coronavirus. Just today, all sorts of bad news and horrendous projections throughout the world. Uh, Chancellor Merkel from Germany now saying that 70 percent of Germany may end up getting the coronavirus. Uh, Italy is on total lockdown. Uh, Iran is having all sorts of major problems and, and lots of deaths because of coronavirus. Here in the United States, public events are being canceled almost on an hourly basis and schools are now closing going to Internet-only classes, especially colleges. My alma mater, Georgetown, just announced that they were doing that. The stock market is in total chaos. Uh, Last I checked, down at least 1,000 points in the Dow Jones today after being up over 1,000 points yesterday. Uh, I have mentioned this previously, but it's amazing to me how little attention this gets because if any other president did it, it's all we would be talking about. But back on February 24th, Donald Trump tweeted That stocks are looking very good to him. Correct. That's right. February 24th, stocks are looking very good to me. Correct. That's essentially as close as the President of the United States has ever gotten to saying, buy stocks, it's a good deal. Since that tweet, the Dow Jones is down at least 4,000 points. 4,000 points. That means that there are people, you know they existed, maybe some old people who were using their retirement, who, on the word of the president of the United States, put money into the stock market and have lost in, an enormous percentage of that principle already just since February 24th. And that's all on Donald Trump. Correct. Uh, and, uh, and somehow that's not been, at least as far as I can tell, a major story. Now, as far as the coronavirus uh, threat, I am really, really conflicted about this. Uh, I get that it's a very, very serious matter. I get that we need to be as diligent as possible. Uh, um, I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we, we skipped the podcast over the weekend because I was traveling to see my father in Arizona. Uh, and frankly, while I was traveling via plane and, and was in Arizona, now Arizona is a little bit different it's a little hotter there. Uh, the mentality is a little more conservative, a little more rustic. There's still a cowboy mentality there. In Arizona, there wasn't any panic. There was very little evidence that anything was really different or going on other than, you know, when you met someone, you were hesitant to shake their hand. You didn't know, are we supposed to shake hands? Are you supposed to bump elbows, bump fists? I mean that that's the only thing that was really different. Even the traveling, there were uh, some travel workers who were wearing masks and gloves, but there were some that were taking absolutely no precautions at all. The only other uh, thing I noticed difference was it was, you know, the, the plane smelled better because clearly they were doing a better job of cleaning the planes. Uh, so, there, there, you know, it was to me the right level of diligence without the panic. Uh, and, and that's what I feel like a large part of the real world is experiencing right now. Now, Maybe that's delusionally optimistic, but maybe that's being more realistic. Among the elites, there's total panic. There is total panic among the elites. And a lot of this is being driven, and I have to say, this is why I'm partially conflicted. A lot of this is being driven by liberals, liberals who are making these decisions. I mean, that's, when it comes to schools, that's who's making these decisions. Especially, and when it's making a lot of these events, uh, that are being canceled, are run by liberals. Not all, all, but a lot. But especially among the elite academic institutions. Uh, th- th- these are all liberals making these decisions to shut down. And for a very long time, I have been exceedingly agitated by what I call cancellation nation, where our willingness or to accept things being canceled for reasons that we never and this is not just looking at the past with rose-colored glasses or, you know, back in my day, you know, we, we uh, walked uh, uphill both ways in the snow to school, that whole thing. Uh, no, that's not what this is. This is reality. Uh, I, I mean, w- w- I'm 52 years old, and in my youth, uh, there, I, there were all sorts of things that would not have gotten canceled, that get canceled uh, on the drop of a hat now, especially in the realm of sporting events, whether it's weather-related or, or anything. The threshold for canceling stuff, to me, has gotten dangerously low. And we are seeing that now uh, with the panic related to the coronavirus. And a lot of this doesn't even seem logical to me. Let me give you the example, because this kind of encapsulates a lot of my concerns, because it deals with the liberal elites, and it deals with events being canceled, and it even deals with the issue of sports. I'm a passionate sports fan. But The first uh, conference within colleges to cancel their conference basketball tournament was the Ivy League. Now, when I saw this, I thought, wow, that's just perfect. Boy, that's not going to fit into the the pro-Trump narrative of liberal elites driving this panic at all because of all the college conferences that are driven by liberal elites, the Ivy League is right at the top. That's where Harvard, Yale, Penn, Princeton, Columbia, those are the schools that make up the Ivy League. And they canceled their conference basketball tournament, canceled it, just wiped it out. Now, follow me here because this to me shows the lack of logic, and to me, the potential uh, evidence of an overreaction uh, inherent in these decisions. Because here's what happens. So their conference tournament takes the top four teams from the Ivy League. Now that's important as a sports fan because there were two teams, Penn and and Princeton that fought like hell to make the final four so that they could make the tournament. And the tournament happens to be on campus of the University of Pennsylvania. I grew up in Philadelphia. The Palestra is a, a, a very famous place to play basketball, it's like a cathedral of college basketball. This is a big deal. And so the Pennsylvania team worked their butts off to qualify for the tournament on their home court. And now they play, they're, uh, they're supposed to play a final four at the Palestra, to determine who goes to the NCAA tournament. For these guys, for these teams, and for the women, this is their whole season. This is their whole career. You know, you only get four years in college. You really only play two or three years. So you really only get a couple of shots at this in your whole life. And, you know, for if you're a University of Pennsylvania player, you might only get one shot at this to play in, in your conference tournament on your home court and it gets wiped out because some wussy uh, liberal academic wants to virtue signal to the rest of the world how how much better we are than everybody else. The great unwashed out there are going to have their conference tournaments, but we're going to cancel ours, and we're going to—we're not going to we're not gonna have a tournament where there's no crowd. See, that's the part of this that, that boggles my mind, so, because there are other options. I get you want to take precautions— you know what, there, there's a thing that used to be called personal responsibility. I mean, everybody at this point knows there is a risk. There is a risk going to a public event. Everybody knows that at this point. We, we we know enough about this virus to know what the nature of the risk is, who's vulnerable. So if you're an older person or you got immunity issues or a smoker, whatever, then guess what? Don't go to the game. That's your decision. Don't go to the game. That's the first thing you could have done is just put out a warning. Hey, we're advising people if you're in a vulnerable state or you don't want to get uh, you know exposed to the virus, don't come to the game. That would theoretically take away your your legal liability, which I think is a, 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 a it's clearly driving part of the decision making here, at least seems to be their fear of lawsuits. but you could just give a warning and say, look, you know, you want to come great, but we're advising against it. If you really want to be restrictive, you could say, all right, no crowd. There are some events that are doing this. We're just going to play the games because it's a once-in-a-lifetime situation. Once you cancel it, you cannot go back. There's other things, you know, when you, when you you know take classes to the, to, uh, the Internet version, you know, okay, that's not ideal, but you're not losing things forever and ever. This is a one-shot deal. You cannot postpone it. It has to happen now or it never happens the rest of your life and it's gone forever. So they could have just had it without any kind of a crowd. They didn't decide to do that. No, they just decided, screw you people, because most of these liberal academics hate sports anyway. Uh, they, they hate the idea that academia is overshadowed by sports, and any chance they have, they, they have an opportunity to stick it to sports, they do. And so, so they cancel the whole thing, which, by the way, uh, not just harms the people who have been working all year and maybe their whole career for this opportunity. But there's people who lose money, people that are going to work the games, you know, concessions people, uh, There's all sorts of economic implications to this. But here's the part that's illogical. And this to me goes to there's there's something not right about these decisions. And it's not based in a real concern over public health because because here's the smoking gun. So what does the Ivy League do about their NCAA representative? Well, they have decided that Yale has won their conference because they had the best regular season record. Now, as a sports person, I got a problem with that because those weren't the rules. Everyone thought the rules were make the Final Four, and then we determine the conference championship between a Final Four, uh, you know, semifinals and a finals at the Palestra. So that, that's a problem for me as a sports guy. Okay, but fine. Desperate times, desperate measures. You declare Yale the champion. But here's the part that shows it to be totally illogical. Why is Yale being allowed to go to the NCAA tournament? Why? If, if the Ivy League is determined that it is unsafe to hold a conference tournament, why are they allowing their school, their students, presumably fans of their school, to go to an NCAA tournament game, which, by the way, they're going to get killed in, not literally, but figuratively, they're gonna they're gonna get crushed. But it doesn't matter. From a health perspective, why is that game okay for them to play? What is the NCAA gonna do as far as precautions that would not have been capable of being done by the Ivy League in their conference championship? None. Zero. That to me, that that clear source of, of illogical thinking shows that this is a political decision, at least as much as it is a medical decision, because if it was a medical decision, a health uh, decision, a safety concern, they would say, you know what? Sorry, Yale, Uh, you'll be declared champions, but you're not allowed to go to the NCAA tournament. That would be consistent. I would be wrong, but that would be consistent. To me, I believe that, you know, you'll talk about contagions. There's a cancellation contagion going on here. I'm not saying it's totally legitimate. I completely get the theory. And this is a theory that makes sense, that if you cancel everything, that you at least buy time for the virus, if it's going to spread all over the place anyway, you buy time so that your health services are not completely overwhelmed. I get it. I understand it but I'm looking for some consistency here. I'm looking for something that makes sense. And from what I have seen, it doesn't make sense, but I'll tell you what does explain a lot, because this is the way humans work. Human beings follow the pack. Human beings need cover for controversial decisions. And once your, your liberal elites start with canceling everything and we're going to cancel classes and we're going to cancel conference basketball tournaments, then guess what? That has a cascading effect because now, for instance, I already mentioned you know my university, Georgetown. Georgetown is you know just below the Ivy League, and so you know, it's kind of like the, the Washington Post to the New York Times. If the New York Times reports something, the Washington Post feels like they're obligated to report it. Well, if the Ivy League does something, now Georgetown has to do it, because if we don't do it, now we're not as good as the Ivy League. So we cancel classes we, you know, after Stanford does it, and that has a cascading effect all the way down, because nobody wants to be the guy who doesn't cancel and something goes wrong. Because as soon as you remove the political cover, everyone's going to curl into the fetal position. And once everyone fe- caught, you know, it, 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 there's no stopping it. One, you know, Because now we're getting to the point where if you don't cancel classes, somehow you're a public menace and you're going to get destroyed if something bad happens, if even one person gets the coronavirus, they might not even have to die for you to get destroyed. And so everyone's going to protect their, their own gig. Everyone's going to go is, is terrified of being publicly attacked. And uh, everything's going to get canceled. Everything is going to get canceled. All, all classes uh, wouldn't shock me at all. At if, if the very least, the NCAA basketball tournament uh, bans all crowds. Um, and to me, you know, as a golfer, I will believe that this is 100% real if they cancel the Masters. If they cancel the Masters in April in Georgia, which I think I I cannot believe that's going to happen because, you know, it gets hot in April in Georgia, and heat is supposed to be the enemy of of this and all viruses. And and Augusta National has always been the last bastion of rationality. They do not panic, they do not change, they do not cave into public pressure, because they don't give a shit. So if Augusta National caves, then I know, okay, we're in a real, real, real big crisis here. Uh, There's no indication of that happening yet. And in general, I do believe that we are overreacting. I I do. I mean, I, I, I get why there's a good element to overreaction. There's a good, kind of like with Bernie Sanders. I mean, I overreacted, I guess, on Bernie Sanders, but there was a good reason and the result was positive because Bernie Sanders not because of me, but because of the general, you know, panic or overreaction now in retrospect to the potential of him being the Democratic nominee, it has stopped him from being the nominee. So that's good. And by the way, that's part of the mentality here that allows people to go with the world is going to end philosophy. If you think about it, and this has always been the case since the beginning of man, those claiming the world is going to end are an inherently uh, no lose situation, right? Because if it turns out to be as bad as they said, they were the ones that were right. They're the ones that warned everybody, right? So So they get to be vindicated. If they turn out to be wrong, well, they first of all, no one's upset because everyone's thrilled that they were wrong. And two, they get credit for having sh- given the warnings that allowed us to be diligent. And to head this thing off before it was a complete catastrophe. And because that is so, such an enticing position, it's a no-lose position, I'm inherently skeptical of it. And while there are important differences, I do find it interesting that those that are the most adamant that the world is going to end and that the sky is falling, these are also almost exactly almost exactly the same people and groups of people who are alarmists on climate change because it's the same mentality. The climate change alarmism is the same mentality. We're all going to die 12 years. We have to live. Oh, no. Well, if they turn out to be wrong, first of all, no one's going to remember. That's part of what they always bank on. And two, they'll get credit for having uh, you know, sounded the alarms and prevented us from destroying the world. That's the way it works. And so, and I'm also inherent within this. This is not just a philosophical issue. There's a practical element of this. The With regard to climate change alarmism, the, the essence, the foundation of that entire argument is extrapolation. The extrapolation of data, data that I'm not sure is totally reliable, but it is the extrapolation of data that provides the evidence for which or upon which these climate alarmists claim the world is going to end? Well, it's the exact same thing, maybe much more dramatically with regard to coronavirus, because the problem with extrapolation is you're off even a little bit. You're off even a little bit in your calculations or your presumptions, and everyone's always going to presume the worst case scenario. You have to, because if you're you're going to be wrong, you want to be wrong on being too cautious. Plus, There's an inherent bias. And by the way, part of that bias, I really do believe, and I think it's subconscious, but I think it exists. There is a subconscious bias here among especially liberals and liberal elites that everyone knows that this is bad for Trump, that the more things get closed, the more that there is, this is real, the more this impacts life, the more the stock market goes down. This is bad for Trump. I'm not suggesting this is anything close to a conspiracy. I'm talking about this being a subconscious element of why it is that people are so willing to say, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen. We're all going to die. Uh, this is This could be very bad. It could be very bad. I am not convinced yet it's going to be very bad. I 100% agree we need to be taking as many precautions that are rational as possible. But there's still lots of reasons to think that this might not be all that horrendous. The numbers in South Korea are way down, even in parts of China. Now, it's hard to trust the Chinese. But if if you do, based upon what they're saying, there are numbers that are gone down in China. Uh, we have not seen a massive explosion yet here in the United States. As far as how contagious this is, you know, one of my questions is, if it's so contagious, then how is it that on these cruise ships not that, that have been, you know, docked outside of the country, because we don't want to bring people who have been infected uh, into the country, why is it that very small percentages of the people on the cruise ships have ended up getting this. I mean, mean, it is obviously very contagious, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to get. And there's a massive difference between getting a little bit of a virus and getting a lot of it. And if you're healthy, you have apparently an excellent chance of being okay. You might not even experience symptoms. And so... I am a skeptic by nature, but, and I hope I'm right on this. I am fully acknowledging that this could end up being just as bad. Well, I don't think it's going to be as bad as the worst case scenarios, but this could be very, very bad. And the unknown here is inherently scary, and it's driving a lot of this. It's driving a lot of the stock market collapse, which you know, looks to me again, I'm not Donald Trump telling you to buy stock, but that it looks to me like that has been a, a, a significant overreaction. And that when this thing by summertime is gone, uh, that we could see a, a significantly different uh, view of the stock market. Big if. But that's what it feels like to me uh, as of right now. Uh, I always use my wife as a uh, as a one person focus group. She, as I told you before, was on the uh, the very beginning of the panic. I mean, she panicked before almost anybody. Buying all sorts of supplies for when we get quarantined, which may happen here in Southern California, and we're expecting that our children or my my seven-year-old daughter is going to be pulled out of school at some time uh, fairly soon. I've even had conversations with her principal about, okay, if you do this, you better make sure that there's a date uh, or, or at least a standard for when they go back, because once you pull the plug on going to school, how do you go back? Because it's never going to be, if, if, one, if the standard is one person being endangered, you're never going to be in a situation where it's okay, where people are totally safe. I mean, that's not the real world. We, not, nothing we do is safe. I mean, that's what the whole flu bug is every year anyway. Twenty to 70,000 people in this country die from the flu every single year. Life is risky. People die, 50,000 or so die of car accidents every year. We don't count those on a, on a daily basis as if there's some sort of crisis. We just accept that as part of life. And I get the unknown here is great and the downside is much greater uh, than in those situations, but we don't know that yet. But with regard to my wife, she's, she doesn't come full circle, but she's actually gone from being one of the early panickers to now being not quite as skeptical as me But almost as skeptical of me, largely because one of her favorite uh, doctors, Dr. Drew of uh, TV and radio fame, has been outspokenly saying that this is much ado about nothing. And she trusts Dr. Drew. Ironically, I don't trust Dr. Drew because I've been on the show a few times and and I think he's a bit of a a fame whore. But uh, that's where my wife is. So my wife, we're almost in the same spot on this. Uh, Not quite. uh, uh, But we're still hopeful that uh, this is going to be bad, but not as bad. As uh, the media and the liberal elites are telling you, though not as good as Donald Trump is telling you. And in a later podcast, I'll get into why Trump deserves a lot of the criticism he's getting, not necessarily for his specific actions on this, but because he's a pathological liar. And no one can trust him. So he's, you know, it's it's he's, <laughs> the, you know, he, you reap what you sow. And when you reap lies for three and a half years, and a crisis happens, and I've been saying this for years, this is going to be the problem. It, it's not a, a mistake that everyone no, that no one's trusting you. That that's the price you pay. You know, live by the sword, die by the sword. You live by the lie, you die by the lie. No one trusts you. So, uh, we'll get into that in a, in a later episode because obviously this topic is is not going away. But right now, uh, in a moment, I, I do want to tell you about maybe the dumbest political move and most vindictive political move Donald Trump has ever made. He did this last night. But first, here is an interview with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John.
1: Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium, clinical-grade, full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions, and salves and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan.
0: Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity, but for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important?
1: CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or or the element basically that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness.
0: Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana and why your product is not the latter.
1: Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain... 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally. And these schedules all the non-THC cannabinoids. So essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know, you know, can I, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal.
0: Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products, but tell us uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical Products?
1: Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products for the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just You don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at Imbue Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian, you know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Yeah, obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to, to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well.
0: And that website is?
1: It's www.invuecbd.com. It's www dot com.
0: Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD, what was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good
1: question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from you know a basically you know drugs that shouldn't be there that aren't doing what they're supposed to do that can cause harm and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In, in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and, and the way that uh, you know CBD, which is basically a kind of a, a brand new uh, thing for FDA they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Inview Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the
0: process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us tell us why you bring more value.
1: We are more expensive than some folks and certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're, we are a higher priced product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness. And you know what our folks tell us and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're gonna spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do.
0: So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products or learn more about them, where should they go?
1: Go to our website. It's www.imbucbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com.
0: Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship.
1: John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it.
0: So we all know that Donald Trump is a narcissist. He's vindictive. He only cares about himself. He couldn't care less about the Republican Party, which is one of the many reasons why I was against his nomination in 2016. I knew this would end badly. I had no idea it would be as bad as this because I didn't think he would be president. I thought he would be gone after losing in 2016. And even uh, his presidency has been in many ways worse than I ever imagined, largely because he has not grown into the office at all. If anything, he has become more infantile as the adults have left the building. Because there's no one around him to say, Mr. President, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. They're all sycophants now. They're all cult 45 members. And last night, Donald Trump did something that even I found astonishing. I've I've referenced this in the last uh, episode of the podcast, but now it's official. So to review, the very first person to endorse Donald Trump in his 2016 campaign of any credibility was Senator Jeff Sessions from Alabama. Sessions endorsement was key. Sessions was a very loyal soldier for Trump, and when Trump got elected, he was rewarded with the position of being attorney general. So he left the U.S. Senate to go to the, to the attorney general position, as I've said a hundred times on this podcast or thereabouts. The reason why uh, Trump hated Sessions as attorney general was he recused himself from the Russian investigation, which was absolutely the right decision, 100% the right decision. He recused himself from the Russian investigation, which prevented Trump from being able to have control over the Mueller investigation, which, of course, it didn't it turn out that he really needed much control because Mueller himself was not capable of doing what most people thought he was. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But that's another story we've talked about previously. So the whole purpose for, for uh, Sessions, in Trump's mind, was to protect Trump. And when he didn't do that, Trump shit all over him for at least a year. It made it very clear he was going to fire Sessions, which in any other administration would administration would have been considered outrageous. He did so the day after the twenty eighteen midterm elections when no one was paying attention. And he did so purely because he knew Mueller's report was coming out and he wanted his own guy. He wanted his own Roy Cohn and he got Bill Barr and Bill Barr did exactly what he was supposed to do. So. Sessions gets fired. Sessions says nothing bad about Trump. In fact, Sessions decides he wants to run for his old seat in the Senate again. And he puts out a video kissing Trump's ass. Kissing Trump's ass. Really? Come on. You cannot be serious. But he does that because he knows that's the only way back to the Senate because Trump is so popular in Alabama, especially in a Republican primary, that Trump can prevent anybody, pretty much he wants, from being elected. And so Sessions kisses up to Trump. And for a while, it looked like it might have worked. I think Trump may have even made some sort of statement about Sessions that wasn't too horrendous. Well, they had an election last Tuesday and Sessions did not get enough votes to prevent a runoff because there were a lot of candidates. And the last two candidates, two top two candidates were Jeff Sessions and Tommy Tuberville. Tommy Tuberville is a guy who's completely unqualified for the position. he appears to be a whack job. He's the former head football coach at the University of Auburn uh, and uh, and that's why he's known. He wasn't even that great a coach at Auburn, uh, but he uh, was one of the top two vote getters. Last night on Twitter, Donald Trump endorsed Tommy Tuberville for the position. It's unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. Charles Barkley, fellow Auburn uh, alum, I don't know how he feels about Tommy Tuberville, but uh, even Charles thinks it's utterly ridiculous. Uh, It it is absurd. It is absurd from the perspective of disloyalty. It is absurd from the perspective of qualifications. Sessions is the far more qualified candidate than Tommy Tuberville, even if uh, Tuberville wasn't nuts. Uh, And he's the far more electable candidate. Because now, assuming Trump gets what he wants, and it will be interesting to see, this will be an interesting test. I don't know enough about what's going on in Alabama to know whether Sessions still has a chance now that Trump has endorsed Tuberville. My guess is Tuberville will probably win the primary. Uh, But Sessions has always been exceedingly popular there. He's very well known. Uh, So, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting. Those will be fascinating results to see. But assuming Trump gets what he wants... And Tommy Tuberville, a far less qualified and less electable option, is the Republican nominee for Senate in November. This brings in the very real specter that Democrats, in the form of Doug Jones, are going to keep that seat. So, which would, if Trump is reelected, greatly harm his agenda. It would harm Mitch McConnell, the guy who defended and paved the way for Trump to avoid a conviction for impeachment because it reduces his numbers, and who knows, might even impact who who controls the, the Senate in the next term, and and reward a guy, Doug Jones, who voted to impeach Donald Trump on both counts, all because of his own ego, his own vindictiveness, his own sense of revenge against somebody who was his first endorser and his most loyal uh former employee. You cannot be serious. So so Trump has shit all over Jeff Sessions from the beginning in every possible way. Sessions has been incredibly, absurdly loyal. And what ends up happening? Trump ends up endorsing his unqualified whack job opponent, who I think is going to have a tough time against Doug Jones. I really do believe that because I think that there will be at least some Jeff Sessions supporters that will be so turned off by this that they, they may not vote. Uh, Tuberville is an Auburn guy, which is a huge turnoff for a massive percentage of Alabama voters because there's a, mass, a huge rivalry between Alabama and Auburn. He's not qualified. He's a nut. And he's going up against an incumbent. So, And I haven't seen polling between Tuberville and Jones, but it would not shock me if Jones ended up somehow winning that, which would be just astonishing. It would just be absolutely it's just flat out ridiculous that, that that's even a possibility, given the nature of Alabama. But that's how dumb Donald Trump is. And, and that's why he should not be president of the United States and why uh, he does not deserve a second term. Now, the chances of him getting a second term, I'm going to put down where we have really shifted this dramatically in the last couple of weeks. It reached a high of 75 percent just a couple of weeks ago. But since then, coronavirus has uh, obviously taken hold of the news narrative and Bernie Sanders is no longer going to be the democratic nominee so now now that number is down to a much more manageable 40%. So that's the official number as of episode number 93 of the Individual One podcast again please no wager until the next time which will be a Sunday Uh, morning, uh, Los Angeles, California time. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual number one pod. That's at individual number one pod. Until then, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.